This morning, as we wrap up this time uh, with Jesus, I was kind of torn. How do you wrap up the story of, of Jesus, you know, before the cross and resurrection and all that stuff? And so I decided to go with a couple of stories from Luke 17 and Luke 18, and then a little piece from the last thing Jesus says before he goes to Jerusalem. There's a couple of vignettes about blindness and, uh, and how Jesus deals with people. And so I'm just going to put it up here and we'll, we'll look at it together. This begins with Luke 17. Jesus, or the story begins, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, worshiping him and giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Were, where are the nine Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. There's a few things that stand out in this story to me. The first thing that stands out is that uh, he is, oh man, I didn't even make it to the next one, did I? You got to say something if it doesn't go. You all just stand in there and I'm like reading on. Well, the first thing I notice anyway is that he is a Samaritan. That's a significant thing, though it doesn't mean as much to us in, in our culture, in our day, of course. You might remember with me that there are four books in your Bible that tell the story of Jesus. Three that are very similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the synoptics. And, and, and or, <laughs> Mark and Luke. And John, John is very much different. And so one of the interesting things to do is to see how Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus and see how John describes Jesus and see where they overlap, where they intersect, because they tell some different stories. And one of the things that both, uh, both, both groupings say about Jesus is that Jesus made it a point never to avoid Samaria. If we go to a map here, this is kind of the the map of Jesus' day. This is the region of Galilee where Jesus spent a lot of time, uh, Sea of Galilee, all that. And this is Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding area. And this is Samaria that lies between these sections. And the Samaritans were sort of a a half-breed of Jewish people that, that they were seen as unclean. And so what Jewish travelers would often do is find ways to go around Samaria and definitely avoid any cities. You don't go into a city, but you might remember Jesus stopped to speak to a woman at a well in Samaria. And here again, Jesus travels right through Samaria. Now, the the sense is then that this is kind of a, a, a racist tension that we see even in Scripture here between these two groups of people, where the Jewish people see these people as ritually unclean, untouchable, unknowable. You don't go to them. So they become the butt of every joke. When I was a kid, the the kids on the bus told dumb Polak jokes. I don't know why that was the thing they did. I didn't know any Polish people, but that was the thing. Like They became the butt of that joke, and we could name off all kinds of different races that we know that become the butt of the jokes. We make fun of the culture. We make fun of the dress. We make fun of the way they talk. We make fun of whatever it is. We find a way 
to make that other very other. And that's what they did with the Samaritans. That is exactly what is happening. But Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus, as we read, eats and drinks with sinners. Places are not untouchable for him. The main religious group of the day that we've, we've heard a lot about and I've talked a lot about and the Bible mentions many times is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you might remember, had a very particular view about what was wrong with Israel. Israel was broken. It was under siege by Rome and it was broken because there were people in Israel that were sinners. They weren't holy enough. They weren't following God's ways. They weren't keeping his laws. And because of that lack of holiness, that lack of uh, morality or ethics, whatever you want to use there, that is bringing about the doom of the nation. And so the Pharisees kept anyone they thought was unclean at a distance. Don't you make me unclean. And you, by the way, better straighten up and fly right. You're bringing us down. And yet Jesus never seems to act like that. In fact, Jesus critiques that deeply. You shouldn't be keeping them at a distance. You should be leaving your place of comfort and going to hear them, to be with them, to reach out to them. So Jesus acts quite differently than everyone else in his day. And in fact, this is why we find nine Jewish people hanging out in Samaria with a Samaritan. Why are there nine Jews all together? Why are they together? Well, because they're blind. And if you're blind, you're unclean too. Because they also believe that if something bad happened to you, it's your own fault. Man, it's your fault. The situation isn't going right. If you want to get it, get it fixed, you better pull yourself up, get your sins taken care of, and start living right. And so this group is all outcast together. That's what happens, isn't it? When somebody puts you in a group, now you just belong over here with the untouchables. It doesn't matter what you were before. Now you're here, and we don't want anything to do with you. They cry out to Jesus, and Jesus listens. Jesus walks right through Samaria. Jesus talks with Samaritans. Jesus stops to talk with Samaritans, stops to heal Samaritans, because for Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God leaves no one behind. For Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God leaves no one behind. He is advancing to reach Every single person. And the kingdom comes with generosity. You notice that? How much does Jesus ask for from any of these people that he heals? How much does he demand beforehand? How much does he demand after? There's an interesting way that the whole Bible wraps up in Revelation. There's this text that says... The spirit and the bride say come. So the spirit of God is inviting. And the bride, the kingdom of God, this great eternal land of new heaven and new earth where God himself dwells to wipe away every tear from our eye. The bride says come. There's an invitation from heaven and from God. Come. Let him who hear say come. Let he who thirsts come and drink from the water of life without The water of life is priceless. You cannot buy it. You can only receive it as God wants to give it to you. That is the generosity of the kingdom of God as it advances forward. Because to Jesus, we are all Samaritans. 
Every one of us in this room is exactly the same. We are all Samaritans. Jesus says, go show yourselves. Go show yourself to the, to the priests. And I can see them walking away dejected because you'll notice Jesus didn't say, you're healed. He says, go show yourselves. Which, if you've ever hung out with people who have been kind of downtrodden in a while, they hear things negatively all the time. They hear things negatively. So when Jesus says go, they probably just heard get out and go away. As they trudge towards Jerusalem, because it seems like genuine surprise when this Samaritan realizes, oh my goodness, I'm healed. He runs back. like He seems genuinely shocked. Like we're, we, we got healed. That's, that was what this was all. And he, and he runs back to worship, to fall down on his face, which is literally what the word worship means, to worship before Jesus and to give him thanks and praise. What's interesting to me about this is this connection of faith that Jesus says. Doesn't Jesus point out his faith? And this word, faith, we use so much. And here I just have to, again, harp on the fact that this is not referencing the opinion that the Samaritan had about the divinity of Jesus. He calls Jesus master, right? You remember that? Said, in fact, let's put it up. Master, have mercy on us. Again, hearkening back to that great Hebrew word chesed, which is a combination of loyalty and love. They cry out to Jesus. They call him master, and then they ask for the kind of thing that God gives. They ask for the loyalty, the covenant that that this master now has. In fact, this is so similar to a story that happens just one chapter later in Luke 18. So let's do this one real quick too. There's a mo- another moment where Jesus is traveling and all of the sudden a man cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, Jesus son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, like that word commanded, And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, this word faith is attached here. But it's attached to specifically, again, what this person is calling Jesus. So they called Jesus master in the first story. In this story, they call him son of David. Son of David should ring bells in our ears to the great hero of the Bible, or anti-hero half the time, of the Bible, David, who is the one that God covenants with and who is anticipated to be the line from which the Messiah would come. So what is this man doing? He is at the very least claiming that Jesus is king over Israel and probably also setting in Jesus that Jesus is the one to come, the Messiah. Both of these groups of people have made claims of allegiance, not just statements about who we think you're a good guy or we think you can heal us or we have an idea about the forgiveness of sins or something like that. All those things are important. But what are they doing here? First and foremost saying, you are king. You have the authority to even call out blindness and make it go away. Jesus, son of David. Jesus, 
have mercy on us. Jesus, who is master, all of these things, drawing us to understand that we are not just making claims about Jesus in sort of vague theological things. We are making concrete claims. Jesus is king, president, CEO, whatever authority place you want to stick Jesus in, that is who he is to us. The question is, whose side are you on? That's what faith is doing here. Whose side are you on? These blind men are saying, Jesus, the Pharisees have thrown you away. The Sadducees have cast you out. Jerusalem wants you dead. But we who are blind, we see you for who you are. You are king. We are on your side. And when the kingdom of God comes in that moment, healing takes place. And they can see. But what's more important even than that is the fact that they were able to recognize Jesus for who he was. You remember what happens when Jesus sends out the missionaries and they're out there. He sends out the 12 and the 72 and they're out there and they're, they're, they're healing and preaching. And they come back and they're so excited. They're like, Jesus, even demons were fleeing from us. And Jesus says, that's not that big a deal. Who cares about that? Shouldn't you be more excited that your names are written in heaven? Isn't that the only thing that matters? God knows your name. You were born without a name, you will die without a name, and everyone will forget you except for this. God knows you. He knows you beyond everything else. And he loves you beyond everything else. And he reaches out to you beyond everything else. And he calls to you, he invites you, he entreats you, come. The spirit says, come. The bride says, come. The one who hears, me, you, say, come. Come and drink for free. So the question uh, for these blind people in this stories are, whose side are you on? But also, it kind of begs another question in, in that we want to know what kind of king we might have. So if we're talking about this kind of authority, this kind of kingship, what kind of king are we serving? What kind of king is this Messiah? What kind of king is Jesus? And I'm sure you might have your own term to sort of find a way to summarize these stories, my word that I'm choosing is generous, generosity. God is constantly giving us more and better than we deserve. Can I get a witness? (laughs) You're all dead in here today. Jesus says, if you ask, God will give you the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you can pray, Give us today our daily bread and be convinced that it will happen. Jesus says, God lets the sun shine on the righteous, the unrighteous, the rain, and the good and the bad. Jesus heals without asking who they are, where they've been, what they've done, and what they're going to do with that gift. He never asks the question, do you deserve it? Either because we all deserve it or none of us do. Either way, he keeps giving it, and that's good news. That's good news. Jesus is constantly describing, not only in verbal teaching terms that God is generous, but in his own act of being, forgiving sins, giving without asking repayment. Saying to these people who are crying out that everyone else is trying to silence, telling him to shut up, stop yelling, Jesus is important, he's got things to do. And Jesus says, no, what do you want? What do you want from me? And when he asks, he gives. Do you remember how all of this started, like all the way back here? Started in a garden, didn't it? God makes us, makes the world, and he puts it, and it describes a garden, a, a place of fruit and vegetables and 
flowering plants and peace and animals that are sort of just together with you or with Adam and Eve. This, this, this verdant image of just life. And if you fast forward to the very end of the book, you're greeted with another garden. This is in the kingdom of God. And there's, a, there's in chapter 22 of Revelation, it wraps up, there's an image of, of these trees. And it says specifically of these trees, that these trees have fruit that, that bear every month. Now, you, even if you're not a farmer, you know that's not how it works, right? There are seasons. You get a little bit of a harvest, and then it has to develop and grow. But, but, but these trees, these trees give fruit every month. They're just constantly giving and giving and giving. There's no lack in them. They're constantly giving out. It also says that the leaves of these trees are the healing for the nations. I've been pondering that. Uh, I've been pondering that. How is it that these trees and these leaves and this fruit is is the healing of the nations? And I was thinking about how so much of what we are doing to one another has to do with our fear of lack. Our fear that there isn't enough in the world for everyone. And so we get greedy. We get violent. Fear that there isn't enough love in a relationship. So we get clingy. We can get needy. We can get desperate. We can get in our minds these cycles of just negative thinking, just caught up because because there might not be enough. The economy of the kingdom looks different. The economy of the kingdom is bankless. Imagine a bank in the kingdom of God. Why would you need that, right? You don't need to store up for tomorrow because they're giving every day. There's, you don't need to store up for anything because God provides. God is there. In the economy of God, we don't worry about tomorrow. Do you remember Israel in the wilderness? And God fed them with what, church? Manna. What? There's a, it's also that. It's all, two correct answers. And how long did they get to keep their manna? How long did they get to store it up for? Do you remember? One day. And if you kept it for two, it rotted. God was trying to teach them the prayer Jesus taught us. God will give you your daily bread. It is foolishness to think it comes from us. Foolishness to think that we control and power anything. It is all grace all the way down and all the way up. The daily bread comes from God and the trees are, are speaking this, this truth, this final truth in the kingdom of God where we actually see it happen, where, where people begin to set aside that violence, that greed, that grasping covetousness that makes us wretched old sinners. We can let that go. They learned to let it go in the wilderness. Jesus prayed we would let it go right now. And one day in the kingdom of God, we just will because the kingdom will expand and be that beautiful. But I think right now God is still asking for that generosity. He gave us that image of those trees. He gave us that hope and that future so that we could live in light of that right now. That we could be like the children. Because you know, when we leave today... I am fairly certain, because it's never happened before, that my 10-year-old is not going to lean in to me and ask me as we're walking to the car, Daddy, are you sure you bought enough burger for Taco Tuesday? She's not concerned. She just wants to know what's for dinner. 
because she's hungry. That kind, of, that kind of thinking, that childlike trust is the thing that Jesus is always driving us to. Always driving us to see and to trust and to believe and to put all of that into Jesus. I was listening to the news this week and they were talking about uh, the, um, the, uh, the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs in Japan. The most interesting part of the story to me was they were talking about a rising movement in Japan that is uh, looking to get the Japanese government to begin to build their own atomic weapons because they're near some dangerous people and because the current administration has suggested they need to stand on their own. There's a, a sense in Japan now that like, we need to protect ourselves. I feel that sometimes. Do you ever feel that sometimes? It's a dangerous and scary world out there. Mercy, grace, generosity are dangerous virtues to begin giving and preaching. Because in order to make it happen, you actually have to believe God really does raise the dead. And that is really, really difficult. What is going to save us? Generous trees. Trees that give and give and give and give. Trees that see no lack. Trees that bring together. Trees that make things happen in that way. And if we can see the generosity of Jesus, if we can see the generosity of God, if we can begin to live out that, we can begin to see the kingdom of God come nearer. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die. And before he made his way into Jerusalem to die, he stopped and he looked at the city and one of the few times we read this overexposed Jesus, he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. And he said, would, if you can imagine Weeping, not like crying, but weeping. That ratching, ugly, hiccupy, sobby mess that happens when your heart is torn asunder. And through those sobs, hear Jesus say, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But they've been hidden from your eyes. Church, we have been taught the things that make for peace. It is Jesus. It is his way. It is his generous love that he gave to us and that he commands as our Lord, as our King, to give to others, not out of obligation, but out of the genuine joy of seeing someone else meet love, seeing someone else meet grace, seeing someone else transformed and made new. Let us then, church, as we, as we set down this kind of series thinking about the way of Jesus, remember that the last thing that made Jesus weep was that his people didn't care enough about peace. Let that be something he never weeps over us about. Let that be our task and call to be the generous trees to be the people that know and make peace.
that God might be glorified and the kingdom of God can come nearer. Let's stand as we sing this last song.